the virus is real, it's happening, it's killing tens of thousands of people uh, each month. How we respond to it, let's do it in a way that's respectful, let's do it in a way that's based on evidence, um, and that we check our own biases and baggage in a way at the door and have a, you know, a mature, meaningful conversation about it. But I think fundamentally, try and be respectful to the science. The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. Today we're going to meet a public health crusader. I'm talking about Advance Awards Life Science Category Finalist, Dr. Sandro DeMeo. Sandro is a public health advocate and a sustainable food architect. He's currently the CEO of Vic Health, where he has a passion for speaking to three of the biggest threats for Australians, climate change, obesity and chronic disease. He's a former World Health Organization medical officer and his international perspective has been informed by a decade working across the globe. Sandro led the Lancet series on nutrition, which was one of the most discussed pieces of science globally in 2019 and was a central architect in the formation of the United Nations Decade of Action on Nutrition. He's also done everything from produce a cookbook through to founding a social movement, NCD Free, to engage young leaders from across the world in public health and founding a biennial Festival 21, which is a free event celebrating food and ideas. He has fingers in all sorts of health pies. I'm so excited to talk to him, particularly in the context of the year that's been. Please welcome Sandro. Well, Sandro, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. I wanted to ask with so much, and particularly with the world that you live and work in, in public health, being a former WHO uh, medical officer, what's top of mind for you right here, right now? Oh, gosh, so many, so many important things. First of all, I suppose the biggest picture is, um, you know, we find ourselves in a global pandemic, a once in a century phenomenon, and conscious that so many people have done it so tough over the last 12 months and still continue to do, you know, to really face some major barriers to um, accessing and achieving and maintaining good health. Here at home in Victoria, uh, you know, we've seen some significant backward steps, communities facing really significant challenges. Uh, but then we've also around the world seen, you know, really the undoing of, of years of hard work by governments, by United Nations. Uh, we're seeing a reversal of poverty, you know, the, the hard hard won battle against global poverty has, you know, we've seen poverty increase, we've seen hunger increase. Many of the great challenges facing the planet have really been accelerated by the pandemic. And then, of course, at the moment, we're in the midst, you know, if podcast listeners are listening to this further down the line, at the moment, we're at the point where they're rolling out, where we're rolling out these vaccines that we've worked incredibly hard as a global community. Scientists have done the equivalent really of, of you know, putting a man on the moon uh, in terms of the, the complexity and, and the speed at which science has been able to respond and work together 
to deliver these um, effective and safe vaccines. Uh, and now the question is, how do we get them out to everyone across the planet um, with a very clear understanding, clearer probably than ever, that none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And again, that's the same whether we're talking about Victoria, talking about Australia or talking about the planet. So they're, they're the things that are on my mind at the moment. How do, we, how do we ensure that no one's left behind, both here at home and abroad, whether it's the wider health consequences uh, or whether it's being safe from the pandemic itself? Absolutely. And you must be having some fascinating conversations with, with former colleagues. What are your observations on, on kind of tapping into those conversations with them about their perspective on how different parts of the world are being challenged? And, and I guess any lessons that have been learnt so far through this global health challenge and maybe lessons that we've rapidly got to learn, to your point, around the things we need to make sure we get right in this next phase? Yeah, look, I think there have been some really um, positive things that we've learned across the pandemic. We've learned that, you know, again, it's it, the, the concept of the social determinants of health, the fact that if people don't have access to safe housing, to secure employment, to if children don't have access to a healthy diet, uh, if they can't um, get to school, if you don't have access to even the internet, all of these things in, impact on our health and they've impacted incredibly on the risk of populations from the pandemic. And so I think it's really made what we call the social determinants of health, those wider structural, cultural, commercial, social drivers that influence our ability to achieve good health as individuals and as communities. It's made those crystal clear for, for uh, leaders around the world. And that's, you know, in every, in every market, in every, in every side of politics, uh, on every side of the planet. I think we've also, at the kind of micro level, we've seen some silver linings. You know, we've 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 seen enormous amounts of collaboration across across the scientific community worldwide. We've seen the sharing of information and and latest data out of you know the northern hemisphere when we were in in the southern hemisphere finishing summer, uh, and and certainly I think the Victorian response and the Australian response will will inform what's done in many other countries around the world. Uh, and the lessons learnt here over our winter as, as the Northern Hemisphere now faces a really tough winter. Um, so the sharing of that information and the open nature of collaboration, I think, has been really important. We've seen individuals around the world also be, you know, be affected in different ways here at home. Um, we've seen things like, uh, you know, flexible working hours. We've seen the ability to be able to connect and communicate across long distances without the need necessarily to travel. We've seen decreases in uh, commuting times, which actually has resulted in people cooking more, cooking more from scratch, spending more time with family, spending more time in their local neighbourhoods, uh, therefore being interested in, in, you know, urban renewal and, and investing in, you know, better green infrastructure in, in local neighbourhoods. So all of these positive unintended consequences um, that, have, that have resulted from this sort of big shock to our global system that's occurred. Of course, there have also been, you know, vast numbers of, uh, you know, huge challenges faced. And, and, and I think, you know, you can't under-emphasise, under, um, you can't overemphasize emphasise uh, how difficult the last 12 months has been. Um, you know, colleagues working at the World Health Organisation trying to really stay on top of and, and, and disseminate information in a timely way but in a safe way uh, the information has obviously changed as as we've learned more about the virus um, this is going on in in 
you know, in a very dynamic and, and sometimes challenging media landscape. We've had some fairly significant challenges to various large political systems around the world. Uh, climate change continues and, and is, you know, in some ways accelerating and linked to parts of the pandemic. And then, of course, you know, the rise of, of a greater focus on, um, in, in some places, the, the opposite of what I said earlier, a, a greater focus on, you know, nationalism and the sense of um, putting ourselves before everyone else on the planet, which, you know, is, is going to be a big challenge for us to work through as a global community because, you know, again, we know that until everyone's vaccinated, until uh, everyone's safe, this pandemic won't be over um, so it has, I think it has really, I think in some ways it's, it's really strengthened and solidified the, the importance of epidemiology. I remember for years, for the first 10 years of my career, I had to uh, explain, you know, what epidemiology is, um, <laughs> which was the focus of my PhD. I certainly don't need to do that anymore. People know, you know, that it's the study of population health. I think the role of science has been solidified, but also been made much more contentious and and that's very challenging and, and I think a little bit scary and I think the role of global institutions globalism multilateralism um, and the importance of global solidarity has once again become a an important priority for, for many countries around the world absolutely you can hear your personal passion for this topic as you talk where does that come from what's the origin of that oh gosh um Look, what, what drives me fundamentally is doing something valuable with my life. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, I, I started my life as a doctor. My dad's a doctor. My mum was an, an occupational therapist. My grandma was a nurse. Um, in oh, wow. Was there any chance you weren't going into some medical-related field? <laughs> in <some> clinical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, my, my two brothers didn't, um, but they are very socially, you know, aware and engaged uh, in different ways. Um, but I loved... I loved Biology. I, I was really interested in the human body. I was very engaged in first aid as a you know first aid volunteer with St John Ambulance for many years. I just loved interacting with people, and I suppose for me it, the quest you know it was where you know the question of where I could make the most impact or where 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 the the privileged deck of cards that you know fundamentally I've been given growing up in Australia and having access to education and having a supportive family and then having an education in, in medicine, how could I use that to improve or support the health of, of populations of, of individuals in my own communities, but also globally. And it was probably a mixture, to be honest, of, you know, good luck and serendipity as well as a passion and a focus. I, I you know, very early in my career, I had the opportunity to travel as a medical student, that really opened my eyes to international development and to working across different cultures and just loved working with my counterpart uh, medical students from around the Asian region. That got me involved in a representative organisation of medical students and I became eventually president. That allowed me to, again, interact uh, at the regional level. And then finally, when I was finishing my master's and a, and a, a graduate doctor, the opportunity came up to move overseas and to, you know, to give public health a go full time. And it was a bit of a test. I, I, I thought deep down probably that I would end up back in clinical medicine after a few years. But um, yeah, but the opportunities continued to come and they were, they were incredible, incredible ways to explore 
what I'm passionate about to really work with fantastic people and communities around the world and and ultimately also to to do something with my life that's more than being just about myself uh, that's that's about hopefully improving and supporting the health of you know of a of a population of of multiple populations that and that's where I find myself still working today. I'm very passionate. I, it's what gets me going. It's certainly what gets me out of bed in the morning. I um, can tell. And I love that. And I also yeah. know that you have an all-consuming goal, and that is to put to put non-communicable <laughs> diseases. That's quite the mouthful. You yeah. want to put um, non-communicable diseases on the public agenda. Why is yeah. that your goal, and how will you know when you've achieved that? Well, so it really goes back to some experiences I had as a medical as, as a medical student and then a medical doctor. Um, I was working at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And I noticed that most of the people, most of the individuals coming in with really considerable morbidity, serious diseases and and very unwell, were suffering from diseases that we actually knew how to prevent. They weren't diseases that, they were diseases that we could treat, some of them, but by far and away, they're actually diseases we could prevent. That if we'd put the things in place to support this individual earlier in their life, to give them access to good food, to make sure they had safe spaces to exercise, to make sure they had the education and, and, the, and, and were able to afford to achieve good health, that, that they may not have become unwell in the first place. Mm. And then as I travelled, I, I found myself in my master, during my master's in Cambodia, uh, saw the same group of diseases. I, I did some aid work after the Boxing Day tsunami in Sri Lanka. Again, thought that I would see infectious diseases, HIV, early child infections. I didn't. I saw exactly the same diseases as I saw in Melbourne, all highly preventable. And it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, while I was very passionate about working at the clinical level and treating diseases like diabetes and heart disease, cancer, chronic lung conditions, if we could actually prevent, if we could put the things in place to protect populations from, you know, harmful use of alcohol, from tobacco in all its forms, affording and accessing a healthy diet, we could actually prevent almost 50 million deaths a year, 50 million people just like those that I'd seen in the clinics uh, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, and of course here at home. And so I thought, well, it's crazy to me, this was around sort of the early 2010s, it's crazy to me that the whole world is talking about other forms of health challenges, but we don't seem to grasp that by far and away, the leading causes of death are this group of diseases that no one, you know, and I couldn't at the time wholly pronounce them either. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why everyone calls them NCDs. Um, <laughs> Noted for future. <laughs> yeah, but, but they're, they're, they're preventable. And the other thing is that 50 years ago, the reason that they're called non-communicable diseases, which is a crazy name, why would you call something that it's not rather than what it is? Well, the reason is because 50 years ago, these were a small leftover challenge uh, in the global health community. So we were, you know, the big challenges facing the world were water and sanitation challenges, infectious disease, getting mass immunisation. They were the big challenges facing the planet. And non-communicable diseases, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, were a tiny fraction of global deaths. Jump forward just 50 years and it had flipped. And You're by right. far and away the leading causes of death in almost every country and population across the planet was this small group, you know, small group of, of, of largely preventable diseases that we're now 
you know, killing 50 million people a year. And so the question was, well, how do we, how do we have a global conversation about that? How do we get people to demand action from governments to put the proper things in place to protect young people, to protect families, and to allow everyone to enjoy good health and ultimately give back decades of healthy life, but also see tens of millions of people not die 20 or 30 years uh, earlier than they need to. So I've done a number of things over my life and the mission is the same, but the way that I do it has changed. Early on, we launched a social movement, um, which was amazing. We reached two and a half million young people in 18 months. We crowdsourced the initial funding through Indiegogo, um, we, which is kind of like a um, GoFundMe page. Um, we launched a number of events, boot camps around the world, engaging young leaders from different um, communities in becoming leaders on this global health issue. We made a, a group of short films, which we eventually presented one of to the United, a United Nations meeting in Europe. Um, and that was amazing. And, and, and that continues today. And, you know, then over my life, there've been a, a number of different ways because there'll be no silver bullet. There's no one way of, of you know, raising awareness and, and ensuring that governments act on and, and support populations uh, to, you know, to, to achieve and maintain good health. You know, tackling heart disease, diabetes, cancer is going to take multiple levers across multiple actors, across multiple sectors. And so, um, you know, it's what I do for my day job running Victoria's prevention agency. It's focused completely on preventing that same group of diseases. Um, I also launched a foundation through the income from my media work because I have a, a show on Netflix and ABC, which is again about engaging people in health issues and very much about um, raising awareness and giving people the skills and tools to be able to prevent this group of diseases. I launched a book, a cookbook, which again, all the money goes to charity, but the idea was to, you know, yet another way to try and get this information into more hands to raise awareness and to build support for um, greater government commitment. So, um, yeah, I'll keep doing it. I'll keep finding new ways. But it, and, and I, don't, I don't, to be honest, to answer your question, I don't think we'll probably ever get to the point where it's solved. But I think that, I think we can make huge inroads. And I actually think that the, the current pandemic presents an important opportunity as well. One of the things that strikes me about your career is your passion for public health messaging, but also the effectiveness you've had in, in your various endeavours. And you touched on particularly the global movement where you engage, you know, two and a half million young people. Um, it strikes me, you know, when you're talking about non-communicable diseases, you're like, why would you call something something that it's not? And, and this challenge we've got in making uh, information, particularly around technical topics, digestible, accessible, mm. um, and as well, I think an interesting one that comes in the mix when we're talking about health and the, the pandemic's brought to, this, to the fore again is the trust that we get in public health mm. messaging. I'm interested, you know, what have you done differently that's worked and, and what could other leaders, whether they're in health or otherwise, maybe learn from some of your experiences with getting effective cut through in messaging? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. And, and I just want to first say that I haven't got it right. I mean, you know, I've made lots of mistakes and I think I'm still learning. I think some of the things that I do try to do is to be authentic. People connect with me as an individual as much as, as an expert, a so-called expert. Um, I also acknowledge that I don't know everything and that the science doesn't know everything. And that doesn't mean that we have to see doubt because there's, you know, we're talking in nutrition science, for example, you know, diets and what we should be eating. You know, we know 95% of the picture. 
there will always be a small amount that we work out along, you know, that, that continues to develop and shape our thinking. But it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, get started on trying to improve the health and, and diets of populations. There's lots that we could be doing today. And then as, you know, greater information becomes available, we, we need, you know, we need to be upfront and honest and say, okay, things have changed. What we thought before, actually it was, you know, 90% true, but there's this extra layer that we should be aware of now. Um, so I think being authentic and also acknowledging, being a bit humble, acknowledging that, you know, um, science is still developing, but that doesn't mean that we need to sit around and wait, you know, for a, a line in the, in the road, because that will never come. We will continue to develop the science over time, but in almost every area of health, we know more than enough to act. And the same, you know, with regards to other major areas that are, that are contentious in science, for example, climate change. I think also it's really important to listen. Mm -hmm. So scientists, I think sometimes we, we fall into the trap of communicating, but then not listening. And I've learned so much reading scathing criticism of my articles or my tweets or my work over time. I realise where people are at in terms of their thinking, what their fears are, where the misunderstandings lie, maybe ways that I'm miscommunicating that I can improve. And that's really helped improve the way I communicate. I think also engaging with communications experts, you know, like if you were going out tomorrow, you know, let's say you're an epidemiologist like me, I, I wouldn't walk into a, into a surgical theatre and start doing surgery tomorrow. I'd get a surgeon to do it. Uh, I think it's the same if, you're, if you want to communicate your science, which is absolutely critical. And I, I, I think, you know, science translation for me is an area that we still have a lot of work to do uh, on, but I think that it's um, it's so critically important. I always say to scientists, you know, the moment you publish your paper, you're about a third of the way to creating impact in the world. But it's that one third at the start that most scientists that we spend most of our time focused on. And there's very little incentive or support or even really remuneration in the system for scientists to focus on then the translation and dissemination of science, which is really the way that then society and the public can have access and understand and get value from science. So listening to population, listening to people, listening to critics, listening to, you know, communities and making sure that we're adapting and tailoring our messages, but also, as I said, working with, the, with communications experts, working with those that do it all day, every day, and making sure that we're using the same methods, the same purposeful framing, the same even media platforms and communication channels as, for example, parts of the private sector or other areas of society that are highly effective at reaching and influencing individuals. I think the issue of, of fake news and the so-called infodemic is hugely concerning. And I think there are definitely things that we as scientists can, can do to be more effective and um, engender more trust and authenticity um, and be more humble in the translation of our science and the communication of our science. I think there are fabulous scientists in Victoria and Australia who do that already, so many of them. I also think there's a strong role for government. I think we do need to really take this seriously um, and see it as a, as, a, as a challenge that needs to be, you know, to a degree managed by uh, legislative responses, things that actually protect populations from fake news and... Um, misleading information 
And then I think there are things also, you know, I'd really encourage the public to to try and if you can, and, and I know that, you know, lots of individuals are, you know, going through incredibly tough times at the moment. So it's not to sort of sound out of touch and think that this, that the responsibility falls on the individual. But I do think that, you know, when when scientists are trying to engage, when when they are trying to reach out, being receptive, being open-minded, listening to opinions that don't necessarily match your own and being self-critical, um, because it's through through that, whether you're a scientist, scientist, a politician, um, a bureaucrat, or indeed a member of the public, like I think it is through that humility and self-reflection that you start to, you know, think about, well, what what are the, you know, what are the trusted sources of information that I I should be following in such a dynamic and and politicized environment, you know, what are the incentives behind the different people giving me information? Are there conflicts in their interests? And and ultimately, you know, also reading up and understanding some of the science over time ourselves helps us to feel more secure, but also start to see and decipher, I think, more reputable forms of information. Absolutely. And I think that that's so great in the sense of covering off, you know, that piece around being a, a curious questioner, thinking about your sources of truth, uh, engaging more in the conversation. I think it's very easy to do the opposite and retreat in, in moments where you feel overwhelmed or confused. So that, that point around just asking questions. And I, and I guess that was one of the things I was going to ask you, whether you were looking at it from the lens of misinformation and, and trying to find your way through, particularly in health. I feel like every other week there's a study that you know, gets popularised that feels like it conflicts something on a diet and nutrition standpoint that you heard two months earlier. Um, but also on that piece you mentioned around self-reflection, we've probably never had the focus on well-being that mm. has been enlivened by the pandemic. The fact that people have become acutely aware of their mental health, perhaps their their level of physical activity mm. when they've been confined to lockdown and, and that's been forced upon them. I guess I'd be interested for what questions you'd encourage listeners to be asking of themselves and the environment around them from a health standpoint. Well, I think in, in terms of accessing you know, information, it really is asking yourself, you know, what what types of information do I need to be able to make an informed decision, understanding that the science will change. I think a good example is with the with the virus, with COVID-19, because the virus was only discovered a year ago, there's still so much that we're learning about the virus. So I think people, you know, early on when there were maybe different um, or conflicting information you know, changing information about various aspects of the virus and how it could spread and ways that we could protect ourselves. This was perceived as, oh, you know, that the science, the scientists aren't being honest or that there's something being hidden. Um, But in actual fact, it it was just the simple point that we were under, you know, we scientists were working around the clock to understand this virus that had only been known to to the human race for you know, three months. And so as trials were being done and they were being published in record times and then being checked and, and peer-reviewed through journal processes, etc., the science was building and the science was changing. Now, as you, as you build a critical mass of understanding, the level of change in our understanding of something will reduce. It's kind of law of diminishing returns. So, you know, in the early days where we knew nothing, major discoveries could really change fundamentally our approach and response to the virus. 
Now, a year later, we know so much that it's very unlikely we would discover something today that is going to fundamentally change our thinking around how the planet and how we in Australia respond. And that will become even less so as time goes on because, you know, it's small, it's becoming smaller and smaller incremental additions to the science rather than building the scientific basis uh, to begin with. So I think understanding that, understanding that, you know, conflicting messages or changes in, in the scientific understanding over time, that doesn't show that scientists, you know, are being untruthful or hiding something. In the food world, it might be because we get, uh, we develop better technologies to be able to analyse the science. You know, the whole area, the whole world of the microbiome that we've, be, we've begun to discover, you know, to a large degree, it's because of the technologies we have available today, the types of tests we can do, the, the cost of being able to do those tests on huge scales that we could never do before, that's giving us this incredible insight into the world within ourselves, the world of microbiomes and the billions or trillions of little bugs living in our guts and how that interplays with all the different functions of our bodies. That doesn't mean that, you know, scientists were not being truthful before. It means that, you know, the science is building. We've found new ways of exploring greater technologies, more, more accurate diagnostics, higher powered microscopes, whatever it is that's allowed us to develop this next level of science and, and refine the science. So I think understanding that is really important. Mm. In terms of questions to ask yourself, I think, you know, really importantly is what are my biases? What are my beliefs coming in? So before I even start reading the science, you know, do I come with biases that I already believe in and therefore um, may shade the way I interpret the science? You know, who's written this piece? Do they have an interest? Do they come, are they a journalist? Are they a scientist? Are they, you know, a political leader? Do they have certain incentives that I need to be mindful of? Or do they have, you know, a long track record of high quality science? That's, that's often very hard to, to determine. And even for me as a scientist, sometimes, you know, it's a tricky one to navigate. I think understanding and, th and then being very, you know, go going kind of easy on yourself when, when you do then respond in a certain way to a piece of, of science. Um, it is a very charged, emotionally and politically charged time at the moment. And I think, you know, having strong reactions, having strong opinions and disagreeing with others about certain aspects of our lives at the moment is probably a natural part of the, the healing and the grieving process that, that many of us are going through, having been through what was such a difficult year or even maybe with, with family uh, on the other side of the planet and friends still going through it actively at the moment. But I think trying to acknowledge, you know, be, understand that a lot of that is, is, is emotion and try and separate that from, you know, the search for um, and, a, and an understanding of the facts because they're two different things. You know, the emotions are how you respond the facts, and I, you know, this is me as a scientist, I, I fundamentally believe that, you know, we can disagree on, on how to respond to climate change, but, you know, you can't really, I think, logically disagree with, science, with, with the existence of climate change. Climate change exists, it's happening, you know, the virus is real, it's happening, it's killing tens of thousands of people uh, each month. How we respond to it, let's do it in a way that's respectful, Let's do it in a way that's based on evidence um, and that we check our own biases and baggage in a way at the door and have a, you know, a mature, meaningful conversation about it 
But I think fundamentally, try and be respectful to the science, not mix questioning the response with mm-hmm. questioning the science. Speaking of conversations, you led uh, the Lancet series on nutrition in one of your former roles, and it was one of the most discussed pieces of science globally in the year that you brought it out. What created such a conversation out of that piece of research? Well, I think people are fascinated by food um, and by, you know, what we eat, how we eat, the food systems that deliver it. I think there's also been a global awakening in the last sort of five years to the fact that our food systems are the leading driver of greenhouse gas emissions, more than all land, sea and air transport combined, the way we produce, consume, process, transport, market and waste food uh, actually produces more greenhouse gases uh, and contributes, you know, to climate change more significantly. I think there's also a realisation that it's a, it's, a, it's a leading threat to global health. Uh, in Australia, it's, it's uh, a leading risk factor for poor health and early death, uh, poor diet. Globally, it is as well. It's number one or number two in almost every country around the world and worldwide. Um, and we're seeing this really concerning but also saddening and, and in some ways scientifically, it's, it's fascinating um, phenomenon now where 50 years ago, countries were either kind of poor and had hunger or they were rich and they had increasing levels of obesity. And now many countries around the world have hunger and obesity at the same time. They have, you know, 30% stunting, 30% of children go without food for such a long period in the first five years of life that their body, their brain, and ultimately their intellectual, social and economic development never achieves full potential across their life course. They're stunted for life. And yet 30% of women, uh, adult women, are overweight or obese and anemic. So you've got this really complex picture Mm. of a major health challenge, a global health challenge. Half the planet is malnourished. We have never been richer in 2021 as a global community, and yet half the planet is, is currently mal- malnourished. 800 million people go hungry every night, and yet 2.1 billion wake up overweight or obese every morning. So how do we make sense of this? Global hunger is again on the rise after decades of reductions. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitting country with, in, in terms of greenhouse gases in the world after China and the USA, food waste alone. So when you think about the scale of the impact of our food systems and of nutrition and diets on populations around the world, on our ecosystems, it's the number one driver for deforestation, for eutrophication of our oceans, the depletion of our ocean fish stocks. You know, all of these things come back to the way we produce, consume, transport, process, and waste food. And so, you know, if I go back to where we started, people love food, but people find it, you know, I think I find it even very hard to get my head around Mm. responding to some of these big global challenges. Well, it turns out that that the one thing we love, the one thing that, you know, certainly you and I do three times a day and billions of people across the planet do the same, could be the closest thing we have to a silver bullet to to solve many of our major global challenges, uh, including 
achieving our Paris climate targets and achieving health for all. Now, it's not going to do either of those alone, but that sure. was the focus of both the Lancet Commission and then the 2019 Lancet series on the double burden of malnutrition. And I think, you know, that's now culminated in a United Nations summit, which is occurring this year on food systems in New York. Uh, when I was at the UN, I, I launched the United Nations Decade of Action on Nutrition, uh, supporting my boss at the time uh, in, in that. You know, there is this culmination, I think, of global attention and understanding that our food systems are at the core of and key to solving many of our global challenges. I can see why that engendered the conversation that it did. Sandra, we've covered so much ground today and I thank you so much for the time that you've given and the insights that you've shared. I wanted to ask you, we're big on this podcast in, in encouraging people to take ideas and inspiration and turn it into action. So for the listeners uh, that are joining us today, what's one action you would encourage them to start doing in order to be a better leader, uh, to be more impactful in what they're doing or the way they're showing up in the world? I think the one thing I would recommend is to listen, whether it's listening to your family and your partner so that you take care of yourself as a leader, whether it's listening to those that you work with so that you can strengthen your ability to lead because we're always, there are always ways we can uh, improve. We're all on a journey as leaders uh, or really importantly, listening to those that you serve, those that you exist to uh, support or deliver something to or engage. For me, it's about, you know, listening to communities. It's about spending time with partners, with healthcare workers, with patients, with community organisations on the ground around the world. For me, and even now in Victoria, I spend a day a week in regional Victoria, meeting with community partners, meeting with local leaders, and, and meeting with those that we are set up to serve. And, and that has fundamentally been the most powerful way that, you know, that I found to, to ensure that I'm an effective leader, um, but also that I'm a respectful uh, leader and, and, and that you have insight into uh, your own strengths, but also the areas of improvement that, that we're all working on as leaders. Well, I think hopefully music to the ears of podcast listeners are already making the time and space to listen and learn in this regard and, and that notion of bringing that to your general leadership practice and thinking about that consciously in the way that you show up in the relationships in your lives, I think is a really great note to finish on. Dr. Sandra DeMeo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to get to hear more about your work. I feel very grateful. We've got you back in Australia and Victoria and contributing <laughs> to our national and, and state-based oh, uh, public health messaging. Uh, but thank you so much for the way that you're shaking up the global public health conversation for the better. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.